I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. We are continuing our study of Luke. If this is your first Sunday here, we are engaged in a study of this wonderful Gospel. And we have left off at Luke 18, verses 15 through 30. And just before we begin, let me just thank the Lord for our time here. Father, I thank you for your great mercy that is endless. And uh, I know we just see but a glimpse of it. We don't fully comprehend it until we stand in the presence of your glory and recognize the depth of mercy that was present at the cross that allows us to stand before you blameless and with great joy. What a good reflection as we come upon your word now. I pray, God, because of your mercy and your grace, may we hear your word. May it change our hearts. May it change our minds. May it just cause us to love you and love others more and to be fully engaged with you and why you created us and our purpose in this world. Thank you, God, for all the great blessings and for being together and being a community being able to worship together you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a friend who is a missionary who, uh, sorry, there's a fly, like right on the text. Okay. (laughs) He's kind of buzzing around me here, so I'll be slightly distracted. Lawnmowers, sounds, all kinds of things distract me, right? Flies. Um, I'm just afraid I'm going to suck them in. (laughs) I start coughing, you know what happened. <laughs> Anyways, I have this friend who's a missionary, and uh, he travels all over the world. He, he heads up a, a particular uh, region, so he's not isolated in one location, but he visits local pastors in very remote areas of the world for a particular denomination. He told me this story one time. He said he was flying out to this very remote village in this other country, way out in the you know, middle of nowhere from our perspective, and uh, he said he had to fly into a major city. And then uh, he was picked up by somebody he didn't know. He was just told, someone will be there to pick you up, and they will take you on the several-hour drive to uh, our village. And so he gets to the airport. Somebody walks up and says, are you so-and-so? And And he said, yes. He said, all right, uh, I'll be taking you. And so they get in this car, and he said, the guy's just driving through the city 70, 80 miles an hour, just zipping through traffic. And he was a little put, you know, scared by this thing. He says, then they got out into the open country, heading out towards this remote village. And he said, that, he, said he had that just car posted, 110, 120 miles an hour, just as fast as that car could go. And he said, by you know, an hour or so in the drive, he started seeing these signs on the road that were written in English and the local language. And the sign says, road ends in 10 kilometers, slow down. Another side, road ends, five kilometers, slow down. This car's just zipping along, 120 miles an hour. And he's thinking, I don't know this guy. He certainly knows these roads better than I do. And I don't want to, like, offend him and seem like the pushy American. You know, like, hey, you should slow down. The sign says the road ends. So he said, I'll just trust that he knows what he's doing. Road ends, three kilometers, slow down. Shoo, the car's just traveling. Says he gets down to... Sign, road ends, you know, slow down. And he said they went around this curve. He says they were going fast, and the road ended. 
there was a drop, five-foot drop. He said the car just launched into the air, started, you know, hit the ground, was flipping, landed wheels up. And he said everybody was just like, oh. And people were a little beaten up, a little, you know, head banged up and different things like that. Everybody was fine. He said after it all kind of relaxed and everybody kind of got their wits about them, he said to the driver, didn't you see the signs? And the man said, yeah, I saw the signs. Well, why didn't you slow down? Well, I can't read. <laughs> His driver couldn't read. Right? Yeah, I saw the signs. I just couldn't read them. That's all. And, and he's like, you can't read? <laughs> you know, it's like, no. And they said, at that moment, the first question I asked when I picked up my local drivers, can you read? If not, I want to know. I was thinking about that, actually, ironically, here in Luke 18, because it had hit me. Jesus has made some pretty strong, clear statements of how to endure to the end. We've been studying this. We've been going through. At the end of Luke 17, he's been saying this, this, this teaching. They've been talking about the kingdom of God and the, the coming kingdom. And Jesus said, on the one hand, the kingdom's here already, but then it's going to come in full. And when it comes in full, judgment's coming with it. And those who are with me will be spared, but those who aren't with me, they're going to be destroyed. And, and in between these two comings, life's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And you're going to be longing for his return in the midst of that. And he makes these really strong statements. And then in 18, he begins to explain, how do you endure to the end? How are you to endure to the end? And he tells us to endure to the end, we, we've, we've got to pray and trust God as our judge. And to endure to the end, we can't have a comparative heart and compare ourselves to others. But we've got to stand before the mercy of God. And the question that I, that I come back to is, there are those signs. That the, those are the road signs along the road. Pray, trust God as judge of the universe. And, and, and don't compare yourselves to others. Just compare yourselves to God and stand before his mercy. And the question I ask is, are we reading those signs? Do we see what he's really saying? Have we been exposed to this? And are we just kind of still driving our car each week, each, you know, leave here and boom, take it off and go down the road. And there's Jesus saying, trust me as judge. And then we get all bent out of shape every week because things aren't going the way we thought they should go. And he says, listen, just don't compare yourselves to others. And yet we still find ourselves condemning others and being judgmental towards them. These signs are there. If you want to endure to the end, trust me, pray, walk by faith. Don't compare yourselves to others. And and that's the heartbeat of this chapter. And, and I was thinking, you know, as we jump back in, we took a break last week, we jumped back in. These words are not here for us to blow past them at 100 miles an hour. These words are here to cause us to pause. And say, am I hearing them? Jesus is making it clear. If you want to endure to the end, and then you want to enter my kingdom, read these signs. Pay attention to them. Don't drive past them. As the man told my friend, yeah, I saw the signs. Saw every one of them. Just couldn't read them. And that's really the heartbeat here. So we get to chapter 18. We get to this section here. Jesus is now going to drive us from just how to endure to the end. Now he takes us one step further, and he's going to show us 
when the end comes, when the kingdom comes, how do we know we're actually going to enter the kingdom? So we've learned how to endure to the end. We're going to trust God as judge. So we're not going to fight. We're not going to get all bent out of shape. Injustices will happen. Trust God. And we're going to pray, 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 pray. And we know to endure to the end. We can't compare ourselves to others. So now, once we've made it to the end, how do we know we're going to enter the kingdom? And that's what's here. And he's going to basically say two things. You're going to enter the kingdom like a child, and you're going to value it more than the world. The it is the kingdom. You're going to enter it like a child, and you're going to value that kingdom more than this world. So, so basically, when you get to the end, the question will come down to, what did you love more, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? Jesus is saying those are two very important things. So we're going to see those today, and I want you to, to see these things, and in essence, I don't want you to ignore these two signs. They might be obvious signs. You might say, oh, I understand faith like a child. I understand you got to love God more than you got to love this world. But I don't want you to blow past those two signs because you're used to seeing them on the road. You can get used to seeing those signs, and I don't want you to blow past them. Nothing here today will be new for you. There will not be one thing that I say that you're going to go, wow, I never heard that before. But the question is this, not are you going to learn something new today? The question is going to be, are you going to blow past the sign? Or are you going to really stop and read it? Really take heart. And I'm, I'm hoping today becomes that pause. And I will tell you this, this is one of those things that, yes, on one hand will be challenging. But on the other hand, there's a blessing here. And I want you to see the blessing that's here. I want it to encourage you. So let's look at the what Jesus, first thing Jesus says. We've got to enter the kingdom like a child. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So now, picture this. Jesus, he's, we're on this journey, right? He, he did most of his ministry up in Galilee, the northern part. To get to the end of his ministry, he's traveling south down to Jerusalem, and he's going to die there. And, and so this section of Luke covers this journey southward. He's been walking through villages. And we know what happens. He walks through the villages, and the typical scenario is the, the, the sick and the lame come out, and usually the Pharisees come out, and they got an issue with them, and, and, and he's you know, dealing with the mind games of the Pharisees, and he's healing people, and he's teaching crowds, and along the way he's instructing his disciples. And now in this case, something else has been added to the mix, Parents have these newborns, and they're coming in with the newborns, and they're saying, hey, would you bless my newborn? Now, that's not out of the question. Children were blessed by rabbis. That's just what happened. If, if you were up in the northern country where the synagogues were, you brought your child to a rabbi. If you were down in Jerusalem and, and, and you were more along the priestly line, you brought them to the, your children to the temple to be blessed. We call it a parent-child dedication. That's what's going on. Okay, would you lay hands on this child? Would you, would you pr pray for a blessing on this child? So picture these, these, these moms, dads coming in. they got these newborns. And Jesus is surrounded by the sick. He's surrounded by the multitudes. He's got Pharisees and Sadducees over here trying to, to get, or Pharisees and scribes trying to, to, to trick them. And then all of a sudden these moms are coming up with newborns. And the disciples are like, all right, enough. We've got to draw the line somewhere. And parent-child dedications is that line. He will not do that. Send them home. There's other rabbis that could do this. 
We got sick people that need to get healed. We got Pharisees that need to be schooled. The last thing we need is to have him just laying hands on a little bitty infant. Now, I could imagine this moment, maybe, you know, I always try to believe the best in in the disciples, right? Right? Let's not tear them down. Because I think I would be like much dumber than they were. You know, like I would have, you know, I would have given Peter a run for his money for saying dumb things. And so I'm picturing them thinking about Jesus early on in his ministry when he's praying, get up by himself, and then the disciples come and they say, Master, there's all these people need to be healed. And he says, oh, no, 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 I didn't come to heal. I came to preach. Let's get out of here. And he leaves. So I'm, maybe the disciples are thinking, hey, Jesus has this line that he won't cross. And that line is baby dedications. He won't do that. Okay. So he rebukes the parents. Send them home. You know, and I'm picturing to 12, like running around going, there's another parent, get him out, get him out, get him out, and shoo him out, right? Not welcome here. Jesus sees this, verse 16, what happens? But Jesus called them to him. So, so the, the, them is uh, the disciples. Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Okay, very interesting statement. You're familiar with this. Um, gets read at most parent-child dedications, right? Let the children come to me. But it's interesting if you just read what he's actually saying, if you kind of uh, unpack it. I, I'm not certain this is like the absolute best translation of that, of that, but it's close, right? He says, I want the children to come to me because the kingdom of God, it's probably the, this is probably the most literal way you say it, the kingdom of God belongs to people who are like children, so he's not saying only infants are getting into the kingdom of God, right? That's, that's the reason why I'm making that point. You, you know, he's not saying, oh boy, you know, if, if you're over infant age, there's no hope for you. You are not going to heaven. Sorry. You had your shot. If your parents didn't take you in, you're, it's over. It's not what he's saying. He's, he's making a comparison. Those who get into the kingdom of God, those who get into the kingdom of God are like infants. That's what he's saying. Now, why would Jesus say this? What's he getting at? Well, he's not getting at, like I said, only infants go to heaven. He is making a comparison. Why don't you stop and think about something? The disciples had a worldview that they had in mind when they were making the decision to keep the children away, right? There was something in their brain that said, this isn't right. We need to, we need to get rid of these infants. We need to... Well, not get rid of the infants. It's pretty gruesome. We need to send away the parents. Okay? We need to send them away. What were they thinking that made them think that that was appropriate? That's what Jesus is dealing with. Your mindset about these infants show me you're missing the fundamental understanding you need to have about entering the kingdom of God. If you understood what it meant to enter the kingdom of God, nothing inside of you would have ever said, send the children away. You would have said, bring them on. We need them. This moment's a powerful moment. Let me use it in illustration this way. Marriage is a great thing. But the more that I understand the nature of Christ and his church the higher my view of marriage has become. So much so that I love 
going to weddings. I love performing weddings. I love everything about a wedding because, not just because marriage is great, but because I love Christ and the church. Those two are so linked in my brain that I love marriages, love weddings for that reason. If you understood what it takes to get into the kingdom of God, you would love the fact of these infants coming. Now you say, now what does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to explain it. Okay, uh, so I just said a kind of a big 20,000 foot statement. Let's bring that plane down a little bit lower so you can understand it. Look at verse 17. Notice what, you, what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now I want to give you a little Bible study tip. Uh, because you, you got to catch these in the Bible. You ever notice Jesus will sometimes make a statement and if you have like the ESV, it'll say like truly, truly. Or maybe you have the King James, verily, verily. Or if you use the New International Version, it'll say, I tell you the truth. Okay, that's how they, NIV will translate that. That particular statement, truly, truly, verily, verily, I tell you the truth, is actually in the Greek. I'll give you the Greek word. I don't like to give out Greek words too much because usually it's pointless. But this one, you'll know. It's the Greek word, Amen. Amen means, so be it. So be it. Jesus would do something that no one ever did before. He would say amen before he spoke. And sometimes he'd say it twice. Amen, amen. I mean, I mean. Now, that gets everybody's attention. It's like saying, what I'm about to tell you is so true that it should absolutely change the way you view the world. Now, that is not implying that when Jesus made a statement without a truly, truly, or verily, verily, it wasn't true. Okay? Why would he then, if he, everything he spoke was truth, why would he say truly, truly, or verily, verily, or in this case, just one truly, one amen, amen, I say to you? Why? Because here's your tip. You ready? Tip is this. Whenever a statement begins with a truly, or a verily, or I tell you the truth, or, or whatever the translation is, Jesus is saying, I'm about to alter your worldview. This statement is about ready to shift the way you view the world. So Jesus would strategically put a verily, verily in a, in a place, or a truly, or whatever the translation is. He would strategically put it in place when he's about ready to change your worldview. So when you see that, you have to realize, okay, shift is about ready to take place. What's the shift that's taking place here? I mean, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. First of all, notice the kingdom of God is received. You don't inherit it. You don't earn it. It's not like getting a degree when you get your diploma. It says, you know, this has been conferred upon you because you've done all the work and rights and privileges and you've earned the right to, to get this degree and we are conferring it on. It's not conferred upon you. It is received. But the kingdom of God is received like an infant. How does an infant receive something? So it's very interesting. In the 1950s, there was an interesting discussion that happened 
among television executives. And the, and the discussion was this. They recognized television was a very powerful medium because it used audio and visual. And, and those two things are very unique in a, in a disassociated sort of way. I am watching somebody. I'm seeing their face. But it's one-sided. They're not seeing me. We, and on the one hand, I can build a relationship with a character on a show and yet not know them. It's very weird, kind of a strange, very strange, powerful medium. And so the question came up, how should we market to children? And whether you know it or not, the executives in the 1950s spent a lot of time. And you know what their thought was? We need to be careful how we market to children. Now, cable TV's blowing this out of the water. This is not at all in the marketing scheme. But, but back then, that was. And the thought was this. Children receive whatever they get as truth. Therefore, if we have a toy salesman up there saying, this is the greatest toy ever made, that child will go, that is the greatest toy ever made. And they will want it. And you know what was interesting? In the 1950s, they said, we're going to be careful. We're not going to market that way. We're going to dial back our marketing to children. And they put all these rules and, 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 and kind of structures around themselves, parameters around themselves, so they wouldn't market. And they would only market at certain times of the day to children. And, and all these things because they knew one thing. Kids receive everything as absolute truth. Now, that's not doesn't exist anymore. That's a little ancient history. But it's interesting that they recognize that about children. Now, let's, let, let's dial that back even one step further to an infant. How does an infant receive something? An infant only wants their parent, and everything they want is from their parent. Even if you were to take a, a child six months old, I love it. I'll stand back there at the door sometimes, and you guys are walking out, with your, and I say, oh, can I hold your baby? And, yeah, sure. You guys hand the baby over to me, and I'm holding the baby, and, and then the baby's just sitting there. All of a sudden, the baby looks at me and says, wait a minute, I have no clue who you are. You shouldn't be holding me. And it's like you could see this slow churning, like, wait a minute, not only do I not know who you are, you're ugly. <laughs> and you scare me. And I hate you. Ah! Right? And they're like, and you give them back to mom or dad, whoever handed me, mom and dad take them, they go, ah. Right? You stand back here, right? Let me do this. You got a child a year old. Let's just test it on all of them, right? I can make all of them cry. Not only do they accept everything from their parents, they only want their parents. And they are 100% dependent upon their parents. Jesus is saying this, listen, you want to enter the kingdom of God. You will not be entering the kingdom of God on your accomplishments, You'll not be entering the kingdom of God on your money. You will not be entering the kingdom of God on your status in the church. You will not be entering the kingdom of God because you are really righteous and really holy and you've done everything that needs to get done in this world. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you will enter the kingdom of God completely dependent upon God for everything. And you will cry like a baby if you ever feel disconnected from God. That's it. 
He's telling the disciples, guys, you got to get this. You got to get this. Because somehow you think your values, your religiosity, or your life is the entrance into the kingdom. It's by God and you receiving all that he gives you. Have an infant mindset if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. Now, we, in order to really understand this story, we've got to move to the next story here. Because this is really where it builds. These two stories are put together. You can't let these two stories be separate, the rich young ruler from this moment of these children here. Okay, so now we move it to the rich young ruler. And we see that not only are you to enter the kingdom of God like an infant, like a child, you've got to value that kingdom more than the world. Okay, so now let's look at the contrast that's set up here. Notice verse 18 begins with this and, because the and is trying to draw us into this contrast here. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now do you see the contrast that's there? Unless you receive it like a child. And then he comes up, what do I got to do to inherit this thing? So see the contrast is set up. It's supposed to be there. But before we look at that contrast, notice, let's look at who this man is. Let's notice who this man is. He's a ruler. What was a ruler? Um, you know, our church, uh, the, the structure of our church is really modeled after the synagogue. And uh, the synagogue had rulers. We would call them elders. Men that were elected from among the community to, to operate as a, on, on the governing board of the synagogue. Most of these men were very devout men. They had good jobs. They had good families. They were upstanding men within the community. The synagogue operated also as kind of the local government center, so a lot of these guys would be uh, operating as kind of magistrates and he hearing different uh, issues that people had, problem-solving with people, and they were the respected men of the community. Most of the time, a ruler would have had a good job. He would have had some money. He would have been established, and, uh, and he would have had uh, a, a very good reputation among the people. He'd be the one that you would elect to say, yeah, we want you serving on this board. You've proven yourself in business and family, church, or theological understanding. You're a good teacher. You have all these, these traits. So that's who this man is. And he comes up to Jesus. And I want you to notice how he dresses Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what you have to get, have, uh, uh, catch your attention is how he addresses Jesus because that's the first thing that Jesus deals with when he deals with the man. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, why is Jesus kind of harping on that statement? Well, typical rabbinic teaching said that no one, no human being would, is allowed to be called good. Only God is good. That would have been the teaching. So you would have never, no rabbi would have accepted the title good. They would have said no one is good. Scriptures declare that. Only God is good. So this man comes up and says, good teacher. I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, it, it's probably the equivalent. If I were standing up here and uh, one of you were to come up and just say, oh, holy, most reverent, honorable Pastor Leston. You'd be like, what? How could you call him that? Right? Holy, honorable, reverent. I mean, that is not Steve. Okay. So why would you call him that? Right? It, it's just that kind of a good teacher. 
would carry that kind of shocking statement. And Jesus responds as any rabbi would have responded. Why do you call me good? Goodness in the Old Testament was understood as this. Lacking nothing and in complete continuity with the will of God. That's why they say no one is good. All of us lack something. All of us are not in, none of us are in complete continuity with the will of God. And so, why would you call me this? So Jesus wants to challenge this. I think it's important to challenge it for a couple of reasons. You know, you got to kind of get this guy thinking about that word good here. I mean, you know, in one sense, he's asking the guy, do you really think I'm good? Because if you really think I'm good, what I'm about to say, you should obey because you're calling me God. And if I'm God and I say this is what you should do, you need to obey. Or Jesus could be surfacing the fact this man has no clue what goodness is. He's lost track of what it means to be righteous. But either way, he puts it on the table. So it's a challenge. It's a good challenge. But Jesus doesn't give the guy time to respond to that. He keeps going. Look at verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. What does he say? All these I have kept from my youth. Now, there are ten commandments, right? Jesus mentions five commandments of the Ten Commandments here. Now, I think it's very fascinating, the five that he mentions. You could see them all there, right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your parents. You know what's amazing about all five of those things? In one sense, you can keep those in your flesh, and everyone will know it. Those are all measurable things, right? We'll know if you commit adultery. We'll know if you've murdered someone. We can tell if you're stealing. We can tell if you're lying about someone. And we just ask your parents, how'd you do as a kid? So he picks the five that have a sense of a measurability to them. There's another five he leaves out. The first four deal with living solely for God, right? Having no other gods. You're not going to worship anything else, right? No idols, no nothing. And the last one that he leaves out is don't covet your neighbor's stuff. So he leaves that one out. Focuses on the five that are the freebies. This guy can measure his life by these five, and if you, I'll tell you what, if somebody really does live by those five, they're going to be a pretty decent person. They're going to be upstanding in what they do. They're going to treat their family well, treat their parents well. They're going to work hard. They're not going to lie. Right? I mean, those, those are, that's a good neighbor right there. Yet, Jesus leaves these other five out. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think he's kind of reeling the guy in, right? Yeah, I have never lied. I've never bore false witness. I've not murdered anybody. I've been faithful to my wife. I have done nothing but obey my parents. You know, I'm rising up and calling my parents blessed, but they're rising up and calling me blessed. You are a great child. You are a model child. You did nothing wrong. So he's got this resume, pretty impressive resume. Yet Jesus says, okay, We got you there. I got it. And this man says, okay, I've done those, but now let's look at what happens. When Jesus heard this, right, the man saying, I've kept these. Now, by the way, I want you to know something. What Jesus is about to say 
he's actually going to address the remaining five commandments in this statement. That's what this statement is about. Okay, notice. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. One thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You're going to get treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now we have to say something. Jesus is not saying that you enter the kingdom of heaven by giving away all your stuff to the poor. Just stop and logically think about this for a moment. Just think about this. Just want to make sure you get how silly that is. If I, let's just say I have a million dollars. Okay? We'll pick on Ruth over here. And Ruth has nothing. And the truth is that if I have this million dollars, I can't go to heaven because I have to be poor. And so I say, Ruth, I'm giving you a million dollars. What have I just done to Ruth? (laughs) Now she's not going to heaven because she's got the million dollars. So you know what she's going to have to do? She's going to have to find some poor person really fast. And what's going to happen is money's going to be like a giant game of hot potato. We're going to be throwing it around, and the last person holding at the rapture doesn't go. <laughs> right? Like, doom, doom. Everyone, oh, man, I was just going to throw it. You know? So we, right, it doesn't make sense. It's obviously not the point, right? We're not passing money around because we're not trying to unsave people. Don't give me that. I want to go to heaven. What's he getting at? What's the contrast there? The contrast is about treasure. He's saying, listen, you've got this treasure on earth. But I'm telling you, the treasure on earth is nothing compared to the treasure being part of the kingdom of God. So get rid of this treasure on earth. You don't need it. And begin to start embracing the treasure you have in God and follow me. You see, you are living for the stuff of this world, i.e., 10th commandment, don't covet. But I'm telling you, you get rid of that stuff of the world, you'll get the treasure of God. And you see, you got to let go of the stuff of the world so that you can be completely devoted to me and follow me. First four commandments. Be completely devoted to God. See what he's doing? You might have got five of those things in the flesh, but I'm telling you, you missed five of them in your heart. Because you're living for the stuff of this world, which means you're not living for the kingdom of God. And therefore, you're not following Jesus. You're following him. And he's saying, I want you to follow me. You see, the issue here is this treasure. Where, what is the treasure you're living for? If it's the treasure of this world, then you can't live for the treasure of the kingdom of God. We learned that in Matthew 16. You can't serve God and man. God and wealth. You'll either love one or hate the other. So he's saying, this is what's going on here. And so he says, listen, dump this world, man. You don't need to live for that stuff. There's treasure in being part of the kingdom of God. That should be the treasure you should live for. And follow me. You see, I want those other five commandments. You to be solely devoted to God alone. And not coveting the stuff of this world. Okay, so he lays it out. He challenges them in the heart. So notice now verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. See, that's what was going on in his heart. He got down. 
He didn't want to lose the stuff of this world. He loved the world, which means he didn't love the kingdom of God. He loved this earth. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is being really straightforward. Why is he saying this? He's not condemning wealth, per se. He's not condemning riches. God blesses people. We're very blessed in our country, right? I mean, we have a lot. But here's what he's saying. I think you can catch it. Sometimes it's easy to live for this world. And the more you get a taste of it, the more you live for it. And the more you live for it, the more you begin to really live for it. And then the things of God don't mean as much. And suddenly, serving God and being part of his kingdom is the thing you do when the trip somewhere else got canceled. Because you see, I really want to travel. I really want to do it, right? You get the idea. The love of this world just takes over. And we love it so much that God doesn't mean anything. And he says, listen, once God and his kingdom is second in your life, you're all out because you're either all in or you're all out. And so he says, those who have wealth, it's hard for them because they have opportunity to love this world more. And that's why he gives that illustration. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. A lot of people wonder, what does that mean? There's all kinds of interpretations about that, right? You've seen different things like the camel was a, the needle was the name of a gate in the city and blah, blah, blah. All these things, you know, it's talking about a rope going through some ship thing. I think it really is in a camel a camel going through the eye of a needle. I don't see all those interpretive games. We try to soften it up. I think the point is this. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Okay? It's just that simple. And he's saying, okay, I just want to tell you, if you love this world, you going to heaven is the same, you have the same exact chance and odds of getting into heaven than this huge camel has going through this needle. Which means what? Zero. That's the point. It's a strong statement. What do you love is what he's saying. What do you love? So, it, in fact, it's so strong and so intense, this is what drives verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who could be saved, right? Because anytime we start talking about love in this world, don't we all feel convicted? I mean, I could really hit you hard here and maybe pass an offering plate <laughs> and do real well, right? Because it's an easy conviction. We love the world. And so I can say, do you love this world? Well, you're not going to heaven. Get rid of your stuff. Bring it up here. But that's not the point. Okay, that's not where this is going. But you can understand the complexity. Who can be saved? Now, the answer is so powerful. Look at 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. No one can be saved unless God saves you. And there is the good news. Yes, you do love this world. Yes, somewhere inside of you, if I told you I really am going to give you a million dollars today, there would be something inside of you that would say, totally cool. There would be something there. You might even say, I'd give it all back to the church. Think of that tax write-off, right? Something inside your flesh, if I say, I'm going to give you land in the country somewhere. I'm going to build you the dream house. I'm going to give you a place for you and your children to live until the rapture. Something in this world I could lay out. 
Right? It's true. We have it. And this is why we have to be honest with God and say, God, I do love this world. There's something inside of me that does. So I need to come to you like a baby. Say, I need you to save me. I am totally dependent on you. This is where the story cycles back to, this, to what Jesus is saying about the children. we got to come to him saying, I need you to save me. What does an infant do when it's hungry? It does not go and prepare its own bottle. It just lays there and screams until finally you get up and feed it. And he's saying, that's where God, save me, save me, save me. I need it, save me. And God says, I will. You can't save yourself. See, that's the point. So, verse 28, Peter's excited, right? See, we've left our homes and followed you. We've done it. I don't think he's being arrogant. I think he's trying to connect the dots in his brain, probably. We've done this. And now I want you to notice how Jesus responds. And this is the hope, because you see, we could do this whole, you love the world and I can beat you up thing, and we could just end it there, but that's not where Jesus ends it. Jesus isn't just going to whip you for the areas in your life where you love this world and going to just, you know, strike you down. Notice what he says in verse 29. And he said to them, hey, what's the first word there, by the way? Oh, we should mark that, right? Truly tells us life-changing paradigm is about to happen. Your worldview is supposed to shift here. Everything should change. So here it is. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left houses or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, why does he talk about leaving your brothers and parents and children? I mean, that just seems brutal, doesn't it? What's he talking about? Just put yourself in the perspective of these people for a moment. They're Jews. They live in this closed community. And the entire community is tied into Judaism. Picture us preaching the gospel today in the Middle East, in a country that is dominated by Islam. What's going to happen when somebody places their faith in Christ in a contest like that? They could lose it all. They will lose it all. Walk away from their family. They could have family walk away from them. They could have spouses walk away from them. They'll be cut off from their ability to get a job. And this day, these people, right, you worked what your parents did. And if your parents cut you off, there was only one option for you. you got to become a slave. That's it. Your parents cut you off, it's over. Your husband cuts you off, it's over. Your family cuts you off, it's over. These people are saying, okay, Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me, and there's going to be a whole group of people who say, I don't want to follow Jesus, I don't think he's right. And if you follow him, you're out of the family. It's over for you. Now, what does Jesus say? He says, there are people who are are going to embrace me and my kingdom. And notice what happens. They receive many times more now and in the age to come. Do not read this the way the false teachers read that verse. How do the false teachers read that verse? You give me 20 bucks, God's going to give you 100 bucks. Is that not loving the world? Right? Isn't that laying your treasures on earth? What's he, what's he getting at? He's talking about people who are saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm all in. And there's a cost on this earth to being all in. But God says, I am going to bless you now. And I will tell you the truth. 
being all in for Jesus has more blessings than living for this world, even if you're never rich. Talk to any missionary, this obvious thing, talk to any missionary who's given it all up and gone into some very poor, intense setting, and they will come back and they will tell you, I love it. There's more blessing, more relationships, more meaning in life when you are centered in the kingdom of God than there is being outside the kingdom of God. Gaining your soul is so much more enriching than gaining your life on this earth. This life on this earth is not a happy life, even if you had it all. So what he's saying is, man, I'm telling you, the blessings are there. The depth of relationships, the depth of meaning, the depth of purpose. This is the whole reason why I've been pushing us on this whole engage thing, by the way. If you really start engaging with, with what God's doing in this world, I'm telling you, there's so much more joy, so much more fulfillment in giving your life for the kingdom of God than it is for giving your life for a dollar, for work, for freedom, for a house, for money, for stuff, for success, for an image, for whatever. That is just so empty. Picture being part of God's kingdom and knowing the depth of relationships, meeting people from around the world, having friends and people who care for you. And when you're at your lowest moment, believers come around saying, we're going to lift you up, man. We love you. You're not alone. You're with us. See, there's richness there, so much deeper, plus the internal joy of knowing you're in God's kingdom. So let's wrap this up here. What do we do with this? <clears throat> I was thinking, as I was reflecting on the passage, about 22 years ago, I met a man who was from uh, one of the Eastern Bloc nations. And, uh, and I was talking to him, and he was talking about coming to the United States. He had been a pastor, a faithful leader of a house church, underground church, and, you know, been thrown in jail, had really had a hard life uh, under communism. Communism ends. He wanted to get more training. And the conversation I had was, would you ever be willing to come to the United States to get more training? And his response was, no, I'd never, ever want to come to the United States. And I said, why? And he said, because I'm afraid that I would get there and I would fall in love with this world. Because you have so much. And right now, all I love is God and his kingdom. And I'm just afraid that other loves would creep in. And I remember that hit me as a powerful moment. I'm not taking that to beat ourselves up. God's blessed us with a lot. Let's use it for his kingdom, right? Let's not feel guilty for it. Let's use it for his kingdom. But I think he's putting his finger on something that, we, that, that is, could be a struggle for us. What do we love? We will never come to God like a baby if we love this world. We will only come to God as a bellhop. Right? Just take care of this God. Take care of this God. Take care. We won't live dependent on him. Because if we love the world, we depend on the world to solve our problems. And so we've got to realize that if we endure to the end and we get to the doorway to the kingdom of God, what's the doorway in? It's entering it through like a child. And it's entering through valuing the kingdom more than you value this world. So let me give you a few questions just to think about, and then we'll close in prayer. Some questions, and I'll help you process through these questions, just, just a handful of them. First question is this, what do you value? That's the first question. Simple question. 
What do you value? And you might say, Steve, how do I answer that question? Let me give you the way to answer that question. What do you dream about? What's your dream as you're driving somewhere or you're doing something or you're mowing the lawn? What is your dream? What's that little thing that's going through your brain that says, this is what I'd love to be one day? That is what you value. Second question. What do you love? So how do you answer what you love? Well, by asking myself a simple question, what do I live for? What gets me up every day? That's what I love. Third question. Third question. What's most important to you? How do I know what's most important to me? What do you spend most of your time doing? If you could add up all the hours in a week, what did you spend most of your time doing? That is what's most important. Last question. What consumes your thinking? Right? What do you obsess about? The reason why I'm asking these questions is to help us surface those little parts of our life where we do love the world, but then to recognize it's easy to get rid of that when you recognize that what you get in the kingdom of God is better and so much more joyful. It's so much better to live your life for his kingdom and then to be translated into glory than to live this life for this world holding on to it, not letting it go. The blessings are here now, and they're in the life to come. So the question is, there's the sign. Going to blow past it, or are you going to read it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we have the privilege of serving him. I thank you for your mercy that even though we can struggle with these things, you're just so merciful to, to give us these signs and to remind us of these things and to have our hearts challenged. I know even in my heart this week, it was challenged to be thinking through what part of this world do I love more than your kingdom? Lord, I thank you for the blessings of your kingdom. I thank you for the relationships we have. I thank you for the people that we've been able to meet and the opportunity to be part of your work globally around the world. Just to hear the news of just thousands of young people in Eastern Europe that are placing their faith in you over the past 20 years and trusting in you and being part of your kingdom. And that we get to be part of things like that rather than just buying a boat and going fishing. God, it's just so incredible to think about. We can be part of your global work. So, Lord, let us be satisfied in that. Let us be like, like David in Psalm 63 when he said, I looked up and I saw your temple. I saw you in your sanctuary, and my soul was satisfied. God, let us be satisfied in you. And, Lord, uh, thank you for the grace and the patience as we learn how to walk that way. In Christ's name, amen.